Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, uh, we've got a live podcast for you today. This is uh, from a conference in Dallas called E3 that our friend Sally Gary was putting on. It's me, Richard Beck, and then uh, partway through, about 24 minutes in, a pastor from Southern California named Caleb called Tenbach. I think I got the last name pronounced right. Uh, he's the author of a book called Messy Grace. Uh, he joins us, and uh, so here we go. Enjoy. Hello, Richard. Hello, Luke. Am I on? We've got... I'm not on this one. Oh, yeah. Hello, Luke. Okay. Thank you. So this is kind of awkward doing a podcast in front of a bunch of people. Yeah, we've never done a live before. We've done lots of podcasts. Never in front of a group of people together. Right. Do you know what's weird, though? I'm starting to get invited to things and asked to do a podcast. It's kind of like, hey, Luke, I know we should invite you, but I don't really want you talking all by yourself. Yeah, not, you're not invited to preach. No, no. To podcast. Like, my main job is preaching, but they want me at these things, but it's not like, we don't want you talking as much as we just want you asking questions. <laughs> so, thanks, Sally. <laughs> I, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, because you don't have a breakout session to advertise. No, I don't. Just this podcast. This is it. This is it. This okay. is it. I'm done after this. I'll be sleeping in Pat's office for the next two days. <laughs> the trouble is, this so, is a live podcast. Typically, we've had editing ability. Yeah. Well, they're going to forget this if we edit it, though. Yeah, okay. Because they're not going to know that. Okay, so let me tell you a story. You like stories, Richard? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I love how everyone's kind of terrified. Like, yeah. what is going on here? Because the way a podcast works is really just us talking and then people eavesdrop, but they're actually eavesdropping right now. In a live civic. Okay, civic, yes. so let me tell last you. Last time we did this, we were the N.T. Wright on a rooftop in Malibu. <laughs> we that were. That was the last live podcast that we had. You know, I'm talking. And he. Nobody looked more confused that evening than N.T. Wright. He no. was like a fish out of the water. And, no, um, he, he didn't know what was going on. I'm actually ta- I'm talking to him on. on Tuesday again, and I think my first question is, have you fully recovered from that experience? <laughs> and I think he's going to say, no. He's, no, he's not going to be fully recovered. He's just going to pretend I, like it didn't happen. I would like you to ask him if he remembers, if he remembers that evening. Okay. Do you, post-traumatic stress Do you think he's going to remember your book? I don't know. We'll see. He read half of it. I, don't, I, I want to know if he finished it. <laughs> Ask if he finished it. I, he did say the first half was very good. Yeah. Okay, can we go back to my story? Before <laughs> you, Yes. Before, before you, I made it all about me. Before you interrupted and plugged your book, uh, Reviving Old Scratch, which is now available <laughs> in fine book sales, book sellers across this country. So last, um, last Friday, uh, I had something going on, which I don't remember what it was, and so I had to get a haircut before the hair place actually opened. And... If you look at me, you're probably wondering, yeah, this guy probably spends a lot of time in his hair, so it doesn't surprise you that I got them to open up early to get me a haircut. It, it, that's not a surprise to anyone. I, I guess not. No, it's not. Did you call ahead, or you just were out loitering in front of the, <laughs> the thing, and then somebody looked out the window and knocking. said, let that guy in? Let me in. No, I, I, I called the day before, and I said, hey, I need a haircut, but I can't be in okay. time. And so she said, okay, come at 9.30, we open at 10, but uh, come at 9.30, I'll I'll come early and cut your hair. So I'm there, and she opens the door, and it's 9.30, Morgan, and she's completely flustered. And she, she's crying, and she opens the door, and I'm kind of taken back, and she mm-hmm. said, my 10 o'clock just committed suicide. He's 11. And 
I, I was taken back. I didn't know, didn't know what to say. I mean, mm-hmm. an 11-year-old boy commits suicide that she's cut his hair for two years. So we start talking, and she says, he seemed like such a nice kid. His mom was always here, and she loved him so much. She loves him so much. Uh, he was a smart kid. Uh, he liked to read, and I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why this happened. And do you know the first thought that came in my head when I heard that an 11-year-old boy who has a loving mom, uh, a bright intellect, and a lot of stuff going for him committed suicide was... I wonder if he's gay. And, and like he was bullied at school or and something. He's bullied, yeah. yeah. The, my very first thought was jump right to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you probably know the stats better than I do, but uh, the statistics of someone who is a part of the LGBTQ community being interested or thinking or contemplating or actually committing suicide are just astronomically mm-hmm. higher. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Jamie, Dr. Goff mentioned that yeah. earlier. And so anyone who's wondering, is this a conversation that needs to take place, um, would have to be completely oblivious to circumstances that anyone who's involved in any sort of community, whether it's a university, a church, uh, a high school, they realize this is, I would say, maybe the main issue uh, for what's going to take place in the church over the next 50 years. Like, how does the church handle this? Now, you're a couple years older than me. Yes, a couple. Couple. Um, when you grew up, what was the attitude? It was in Pittsburgh, right? Erie, Erie, Erie Pennsylvania, oh, right, north Erie. of Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, in the eighties. The attitude in your community about the LGBTQ community when you were growing up. What was it like? The attitude. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a, in a small kind of conservative Church of Christ, I, and I don't know if it came up that much. I think it was so in the closet that it wasn't even, I mean, I think there was maybe a couple, um, I forget what the TV show was, there was a sitcom, um, but that maybe there were a few gay characters on TV, but as far as a conversation in my church, or even high school. Well, in high school, it would have been pejorative. It would have been, yeah. you know, you're, hey, that's so gay. Like, that's the way it would have been. But, but as far as a, a live conversation, teenagers being out, lots of, ro- you know, r- role models on TV. Like, I don't, I don't remember that much where I grew up. And, and that might have been different from somebody else's experience. But um, I, think, I think the gay community was fairly well closeted in the early 80s. Yeah, and, th- and that was definitely my experience. Yeah. I grew up, uh, I was actually born in Philadelphia, lived there for 12 years, and then moved to Southeast Ohio. Uh, side note, my dad taught at Northeastern Christian Junior College and then Ohio Valley College, now university. And so uh, it, it was never something that anyone was talking about in a welcoming way. Uh, actually, when I was a kid, I believe there are two groups of people that you could always mock even at church, and it was acceptable. The first one, of course, was the LGBTQ community, and uh, the second was Canadians. And I, I still think you can make fun of Canadians, though. What's funny about Canadians? It doesn't matter. They won't make fun of you back because well, they're too nice. They are. They're, they're very friendly. They're delightful people. Very friendly people. And it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college and became friends with my first, per- my first friend who was a part of the LGBTQ community that I started to go, maybe the way I've always thought about this group of people is off. Mm-hmm. What was, when was the first time you became friends with someone who would identify as that? 
um, two places. My wife was a theater major, and so we encountered lots of, um, made lots of gay friends in theater, the arts. Um, I don't know if that's a big surprise. And I also worked in the food and beverage industry, so I waited tables to get through college. And so lots of people I waited tables with were gay. I like how you said in the food and beverage industry. Instead of saying I was Tom Cruise in cocktail, just spinning drinks. I worked at nice restaurants, so <laughs> the food and beverage industry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's good. There's, there's no need to take a shot at me for that. No, I'm not. I was just <laughs> saying I waited tables too, but I just say I waited tables. When, That's true. Okay. And so the church's attitude, the way it's perceived outside of the world in terms of the way the church treats the LGBTQ community, it's typically not very positive. Um, hey, friends, I don't, know, I don't know how to just tell you this, but let's just go with it. So I started doing a little bit of uh, stand-up comedy in Austin, Texas, where I live, and just, just go with it like it's normal. And I have a joke about how the church treats homosexuals and... It, it's amazing because I'm making fun of how judgmental Christians typically are and few jokes do as well as that because the broader Austin community goes, oh yeah, you're, you're a pastor. Of course you're going to be a bigot. Like that is the, the general accepted understanding of someone in my profession is that they're going to be bigoted. I think that's the default. Yeah, I think that's the assumption. Um, and and I, I, don't, I think the media is to blame for some of that because I think they're going to grab the most toxic representative of the Christian community and just kind of put them on TV. And I think that's unfortunate because I, I do think we get misrepresented. Yeah. But that said, yes, I think that's the default, the, the default cultural assumption is that if, if, if e- conservative, evangelical, Southern Christians, if they're known for anything, they're homophobic. Yeah. yeah. And so anytime the church talks about this very issue... It always seems to be like you're trying to run through mud. Like it, the, the conversations always seem to get stuck in this standstill. Why do you think it's such a difficult subject for, for Christians or people in general to discuss this? What do you think the big hangups are in terms of the way, uh, well, you might have the affirming group and then you have the people who mm-hmm. quote unquote have a conservative view of marriage. When they're discussing, it seems like they're always talking past each other. What do you think is... To, to cause for that. Well, I like the work of the psychologist Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if you know his work, but Jonathan Haidt's work on his book, The Righteous Mind, is a really good, I think, resource to kind of... It, it's very helpful to be, diagno- be diagnostic, to just kind of know what's happening when we're having conversations and talking past each other. And Jonathan Haidt's work on moral psychology, he says that um, when you inventory why cultures say this is wrong, they, they have one of five reasons they give. One is um, care and harm. You know, that hurts somebody. That's wrong. Um, fairness. That's unfair. That's why it's wrong. In-group loyalty. You know, you stand with your people. You stay loyal. Um, and if you are disloyal, that's wrong. Um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, respect for authority. Respect your elders. And the last one is purity or sanctity. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about his work, if you know it, he's got a great TED talk about this is that liberals, and I would say liberal Christians, and not just political liberals, but liberal Christians tend to restrict or at least privilege um, harm and fairness. Like, that's, that's how they judge if something's wrong. And can, you, can you give an example of that? Well, so, um, uh, let's say marriage equality. Mm-hmm. You can look at a policy and say, you know, 
that's not fair. Like, there's a group of people that want that, and so that seems unfair, and so they should have access. So that's unfairness. Yeah. Or if we go back to the issue of suicidality, and we say that community is being harmed. There's a culture of a stigma that creates suffering and harm, and so... So, and they see that. They see the suffering of, of the LGBTQ community, and they see the unfairness in marriage laws and other sorts of things, and they say, okay, you know, those things are wrong, so we should include, right? Hate goes on to say, though, that conservatives, though, appeal to all five. They might agree that it is unfair in one criteria to, to, to not allow gay persons to marry. Like, they get that... that that's unfair in one sense, but they have respect for authority, and that might be Christian tradition, the Bible, right? And, and that's, so that's a piece of it for them. But we also talk about preserving the sanctity of marriage, and so they also appeal to a sacred institution and fear the defilement of that. And his work is interesting because he says the trouble is, is that liberals are kind of, they use two, they play two cards, harm and, you know, fairness, and, and conservatives play a different set of cards, and it's really hard to get everybody to agree because they're just not using the same criteria to judge what is right or wrong. And so they just reach different conclusions about what's wrong and find themselves in different um, parts of the uh, political and religious spectrum. And all of that say it's hard to get agreement because we just don't agree on the ground rules of what is or is not wrong because we just have different criteria there. Okay, so we come at this with, with different motivations, okay? Um, is there a way that you see for people coming from different perspectives to try to find a middle ground to help the dialogue not get stuck? I mean, if we say, okay, these two uh, are for us and, and these you know, five or maybe mm-hmm, three mm-hmm. or more for us, I mean, how do we move past that? Are we just stuck? Well, I think it's hard because I think one of the advantages liberals have when they just focus on harm and fairness is that those tend to be fairly objective criteria. Like I can look at a law and I can look at a policy and say, you know, that, you know, this is how somebody's not being included or excluded. And in law, that, that's a very persuasive case. We can all agree on that being unfair. But the, the, the appeals that the conservatives tend to make tend to be rely a little bit more on subjective feelings. Um, like, why should you respect this particular authority? Well, you just should. You know, why, why, is, why do you find that disgusting or defiling? What, you know, um, and, and, and because those criteria are more private and subjective, if you don't share those feelings, um, it's hard. It's hard to get on the same page. And I think this is the reason why there's a big generational disjoint now. I think an older generation in their gut feels something to be wrong, gay marriage, let's say. And a younger generation just doesn't have the, the same sensibilities. Like the culture has drifted. And it's really hard to convince each other about our felt experiences because it's, it's the same way of like explaining why your, your joke is funny or not funny. Like if you say your joke, and I don't think it's funny. There's no amount of explaining to me about why it's so if funny. You're explaining the if joke, I don't, you're, yeah, if I don't feel it, it's like trying to ex- describe your favorite movie to somebody. You know, you're like, what? You either get it or you don't get it. And sometimes I think that's why we get stuck in these conversations because one group says this is you should feel this to be, you know, a yeah. degradation of marriage. And another group goes, I don't get why you're so hung up about that, Dad. Yeah. Like, and because there is no objective criteria we, we can all agree on, 
you know, one plus one equals two, and we're talking about feelings, then we just kind of, Jonathan Haidt says, he calls it moral dumbfounding. We're just dumbfounded. We just don't know how to proceed. You, we just disagree on um, how we should feel. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you, can't, and you can't change that. And what, what you mentioned is that there is a generational difference on this. Yeah, and a cultural difference. So the culture has changed. I think, I think when the consensus, when most people felt that you know, gay marriage was, you know, a, a, a violated the sanctity of marriage, when the culture held that sway, that you, you could politically win the day. But when the culture shifted yeah. and that felt subjective experience wasn't as widely shared, then you see very quick and rapid movement in the culture. And I think that is a scary proposition. It's very anxiety-inducing to feel like I don't recognize my country anymore because the felt experiences of this generation coming up, I don't get them and they don't get me. And, and we, have very little, we have very little levers to convince each other that our feelings are right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very polarized climate. It's not like this is an easy conversation. It's happening in an election year. I mean, it's, there's so many other background things in the, it, that makes it very difficult to talk about this. Yeah, and, and it's impossible to pull all the different uh, influencers in this decision. I mean, there's so many other things that are, are, are part of the process. Uh, there is a uh, somewhat popular television show called Modern Family. Are you familiar with the show? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they have this... Um, uh, couple, uh, Cam and Mitchell, I believe it's her name. And in the first season of the show, uh, Cam and Mitchell, a uh, gay couple, they are obviously gay, uh, openly married, uh, and they have uh, an adopted daughter. And in the first season, if I, and I didn't go back and fact check this, but if I'm correct, there's no physical affection between the two of them. Two married okay. men, no physical affection. It's not until the second season that they kiss for the very first time. Now, someone can fact check me on that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain that's the case. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems that even from, let's say that show's been out for eight years, the attitude about that in culture has drastically shifted. Uh, there was an article, I, I don't know if you saw this, it was one of the Gospel Coalition articles that came out years ago, and the article was encouraging people to not lose the, dis, uh, what was it called, the gag reflex, the yuck factor. The yuck factor. Yeah. And I, I, I can't say the guy's name who wrote it. But he was encouraging people, when you feel disgust, when you see a gay couple kiss, don't lose that because that's essential. Don't lose your disgust response to them. Yeah. Yeah. But for a younger generation, that's not even on the table in a lot of ways. Because they've grown up with that being something they've seen on TV. It's normalized in culture. And so when you have an older generation communicating to a younger generation about this issue, they're, they're talking different languages here. Because there is no disgust, there's no yuck factor for them. Right. And so it seems like it comes down to there's a sense of we're talking past each other. And then you often get in this conversation, well, the Bible says it, it's clear obviously let's do this. Follow the, what the Bible says. But that, that still doesn't ever seem to inoculate people from having differences of how to understand the issue. Why do you, what, are you, what are influencing that? What's influencing that process? The process of the generational divide? No, the... well, let's talk about with, they see the issue, mm-hmm. well, the Bible says this, so let's the Bible well, teaching. the Bible is a very clear document. We've agreed on that for 2,000 years, and so I don't see why. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I, I preach every Sunday for 30 minutes and afterwards everyone's right, like, exactly. that's 100% right. We yeah. all agree. And, and I do think, and I made a joke about that, but I really do think there is kind of a, I think there are some of us that kind of realize that there is a lot of, I'm going to use some jargon. Jargon it up. Hermeneutical diversity, some interpretive diversity um, that that we're aware of that that it isn't so like we're self-aware that christians kind of reach different and in this conversation people connect the dots in a different way like we're aware of that but then there's another perspective that says well there shouldn't be if we just worked really hard and we were really honest that it would produce a consensus and so that if we're not producing a consensus, my conversation partner is being dishonest. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. the only reason we can't, you can't blame the Bible, so the only person you can blame is the conversation partner. That if they were just honest and saw it the way I saw it, and that's a really toxic assumption that I think drives this, this what goes on, because yeah. the only way we can explain disagreement is depravity. Like, like my conversation partner is depraved. Like, there's something wrong with them. If is, they, isn't that Catherine Schultz' work in Being Wrong, where we jump to, if someone disagrees yeah. with us, then either they're dumb or they're evil. Like, there, there's never a thought process yeah. that initially happens that goes, well, maybe there's just two ways to see this. Like, we, we naturally jump to demonize. I, yeah, for my, my students, I say the three Ds. Your conversation partner is either dumb, dishonest, or demonic. Like, mm-hmm. that's what we assume. They're evil. No, seriously. Like think about the That's people why I never that are, be in your think class. about the people that are going to vote differently from you in a few weeks. Should we just get everyone to raise? Yeah, yeah. Let's just raise No, no, okay. no. I want you. To, I want you to think of the Hillary supporter. <laughs> Go and raise or your the hand. Trump or the Trump supporter. Just whoever's different. Raise from your you. hand. Nope. No one's doing it. Uh, yeah. And then you ask yourself, don't you think there's something deeply wrong with those people? Like, like there's something wrong with them like they are they they're not good people you know like like we feel that and and emotionally we get that and it's the same way in this conversation you just feel like somebody really disagrees with me um there's kind of a dehumanizing response to that we don't think that they are as smart as we are or honest or looking at scripture with as much integrity as we are and and i think that really is 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 hard to move forward so we have so how do we process that our, our temptation to degress our understanding of the other person and saying, well, they're, they're dumb or they're demonic or, or whatever, when often Christians have this, this notion that's been communicated, many of you have probably heard this, that we, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin, right? So I, I love the person, but the sin that they're committing, I'm going to hate that. How, how does this understanding of how we disagree with one another work in that sort of idea? Like, if I'm going to say, I, I love you, but I hate what you do, is there a way to do that? Or does the temptation to say, well, you know, I'm clearly better than you because you're doing the wrong thing that I know is right. Right. Well, I think that's the common bit of advice. You say, we love people, but we hate their um, behaviors, their sins. And uh, I think as a little bit of advice that seems fairly straightforward. But I think it is obvious that when you have strong feelings about people's behavior, 
And I don't even, we don't even make it about sexuality. If you see somebody doing something in your workplace that you really don't like, it is very hard to make your anger about what they're doing not make you think there's something wrong with them. Yeah. You know, uh, it, th- there is leakage between those two. There's a, that when the outrage towards behavior, it, it does drift and land on people. And that's why I think that advice from that Gospel Coalition author when he said, I want you to cultivate, because we've lost our subjective revulsion generationally about same-sex sex, I want you to cultivate revulsion towards these people. It's problematic to, to, to feel disgusted and revolted by human beings um, because I don't think it is, it is so clean. I think we've, we've told people, hey, it's very easy to separate your feelings about behavior to human beings, but I think the witness of churches has demonstrated that that is actually a really difficult and a fraught tightrope to walk. Um, is it possible? I think, I think that's a fascinating question. And we might have somebody... Who knows a little something about grace some- being messy. <laughs> the right. author of Messy Grace. <laughs> Caleb, why don't you join us up here? That was a transition, guys. Look at that. Round of applause. Hey, you hand us. Thank you. Right. Caleb, thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you guys didn't hear, Caleb uh, pastors a church in the Southern California area, right? Simi Valley. I have no, is that, where is that? That's a suburb of Los Angeles. You either know it because um, the Reagan Presidential Library is there or because Francis Chan was there. One of the two. One of the two. Okay, well. They have a lot of similarities, Francis and Reagan. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. how about that? I'm not going to debate that. They're both charismatic speakers. Mm -hmm. Yep, they're both men. I'm not going to argue with that. That sounds pretty straightforward. Okay, so you wrote a book uh, entitled Messy Grace, and it tells uh, your story uh, growing up with two parents. Um, your parents were married. They, they were, yes. They were uh, both uh, professors at the University of Missouri-Columbia. One psychology professor, right? Uh, no. no? Uh, one taught philosophy, law, and rhetoric. The other one taught uh, English. But you had a psychologist in your family somewhere. So, get so to. yeah, so they got a divorce when I was two. Uh, they went into same-sex relationships. My dad was in the closet till later on. He never had uh, a monogamous partner, but my mom had a monogamous partner for 22 years, and her name was Vera, and she was a psychologist. I know there's a psychologist in the story somewhere. Well, it was floating. It was floating in there. Yeah, yeah I mean, floating in there. Yeah, floating in the family somewhere. I think it's always helpful to have a psychologist in the family. Yeah. Well, and my wife is... Well, you have to know that his dad's a psychologist, and so... Well, my wife is, uh, is, getting, is graduating in December with her marriage and family therapy degree, so I think there's something God is trying to tell me with all these people <laughs> with head knowledge around me. Um, my wife has to do all these hours. I told her, you don't have to. Just take this picture and show them. Yeah. That's true. It's a lot it of work. Be risky to marry, marry a marriage and family therapist. No, I know. Yeah, yeah so, I would. Yeah, it kind of scares me. It, yeah, I'd be. Scared. I know what it's like to have a psychologist father. I can only imagine a spouse. That's. Like, yeah. Well, I had a psychologist uh, mother-in-law. I guess. Well, no, stepmother. <laughs> stepmother type. Yeah. Vera. Her name was Vera. I called her Vera. Vera. That was yep. interesting. Okay. So you uh, go to school. You go to Bible college. You're preaching. And I heard you tell a story about uh, you're preaching a little country church, which yeah. I think every preacher has to do that. I preached in a little town called Moran, which many people thought that was fitting because they said, oh, that's great, Luke, you're the moron preacher. And I said, no, it's Moran. It's different. But 
you go to one, thank you for laughing at that. Um, you're one of these churches, I think your second church, and your mom joins you for a service, and you, she did not receive a very warm welcome. Is well, that right? yeah, so I preached in this uh, tiny town. Uh, it, it was in central Missouri, or southern Missouri, near central Missouri. It, um, it had 50 people in the town. Uh, 25 of them were in the church. We were the largest church per capita in the world yeah. at that time. Um, <laughs> Half you of can our write town. a book about that. And we were the only church in town, so I guess that's sad, too, that the other 25 didn't come. Um, but anyway, so I <laughs> preached there for 18 months and, you know, uh, preached and, and tried to unveil some of the principles that would later kind of be written down in Messy Grace. And I tried, on, tried to get my mom to come to church, and my mom never really wanted to come. She was uh, very much an activist, uh, would have been very much uh, the person... Um, that the, uh, Dr. Beck here was talking about when he when he says uh, harm, you know, they see harm if you don't agree with him. My mom was very much that person. Um, I was even at uh, uh, Matthew Vine speaking at his conference uh, uh, last week, and there was a lot of talk about that. What you're talking about exactly this misplaced ex- view of harm and that kind of thing. And anyway. My mother finally came with me to this church, and I thought they would be so much more warm and welcoming of her. And they were very cold. The reception was cold. She would go up and shake hands. People kind of shake her hand and then kind of move on. And there was an uncomfortableness uh, when she was there. Um, You know, uh, there were some good things with her being there. Number one, we had a huge spike in attendance from 25 to 26. It was... uh, Just bam, we have to do that again. He was a church planner. That would have been like that would have been huge for me too. Exponential growth. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and uh, we didn't have uh, anybody to play the organ or um, piano or anything. Um, we no, I know, I know, I know, I know. But this was a Christian church, you know, so they're sinners. Um, <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, so they just play the, the same piano. Page yeah, about they that, play yeah. the piano. But we should have just, um, I should have set the piano on fire because this older Amen. lady, God bless her heart, went over and she just started banging on the keys during worship. She'd never taken a piano lesson in her life. She'd just go over there and just start hitting it. And I was just like, we need to go acapella, people. This is a movement <laughs> of God right now. So anyway, uh, the next Sunday, I show up, and my mom wasn't there with me. I tried to get her to come, but there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, we'd like to talk to you real quick. So they took me to the back room. We only had two rooms, the front room and the back room. The back room was for children, but there were no children in the town. It was like a creepy Nightmare on Elm Street type town. Yeah. And so... And so they sat me down, they sat across from me, and they said, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. Mm. And they said, we don't like those people. And I said, you know what? I don't like you. And I quit that day, and they said, well, we still need you to preach. And I said, you really don't want that, trust me. Um, (laughs) No, we need you to. So I did. And walked out of there. And Hold I just, on, what, let's, let's talk about that sermon. Yeah, yeah. Did you but, do the sermon you had prepped? No. No. No, no, it was on fasting. I felt like the uh, <laughs> Lord was leaving my heart elsewhere after that conversation. Yeah, I, I would assume. And uh, I just felt like, man, I want a church filled with people who are messy, who are broken, who are cutting, who are hurting, people who think they have it all together. I want the older brother. I want the younger brother. I want a church that is messy. I want, because that's what the church is. It's a beautiful mosaic of broken lives. Is being rebuilt by God, mm-hmm. and so that's that's what I want. And so that was a that was a huge learning point for me. Now, uh, 
the story doesn't end uh, there with your, your parents uh, in terms of their connection to church. You grew up in a home where church was not a part of the equation. And actually, if I remember correctly, uh, there was a lot of negativity when you told your parents that you wanted to study Bible. They were not receptive at all to you wanting to go to Bible college. No, so I, uh, I couldn't stand Christians, had a lot of negative experiences. And I remember when you, meet them, when you meet people like Luke, it's hard to love Christians. Well, typically, if um, I have you an issue, me. well, I have an issue with Christians who have a lot of hair. Amen. First Timothy two. Hey, I'm, I'm not the one showing up early for my hair appointments. Okay. Maybe you I should. don't know what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> so you hated Christians. No, I did. Um, and I saw horrible things. Like I saw a March in a Gay Pride Parade with my mom when I was in elementary school. I saw people throw water and urine on, on people in the parade. And I just thought I want nothing to do with that. So I got invited by um, a high school Christian when I was in high school to attend a high school Bible study. Um, and I just thought, man, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to pretend to be a Christian and show up there and dismantle their faith. So I grabbed like a new revised standard version. I didn't know what that meant. They revised something. And I had never owned a Bible. And I went there, and I remember walking into the the house for the first time, and I had never walked into a conservative or evangelical Christian household before. And, And hear me out when I say this. I mean, I love Bible bookstores. I mean, everything except for the nasty testaments, breathments that they have, the Bible bookstore. But I went in there. And good night. God bless these people. It looked like they had raided a Bible bookstore. And I had never been in a Christian home. And I'm looking. I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and lions on the wall and Bible verses? And I turned to my friend who was next to me. I said, is this part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. And I still don't have one in my house. You don't, yeah. And I went down Are there. Are you sure to, you're really saved? <laughs> well, I mean... It depends on who you ask. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. Yeah, the guy who baptized me was a great guy, yeah. but I mean, I don't know. I've had to get baptized a couple other times because his didn't take. I, I understand that. Yeah. Anyway, so I go down there and I'm, I'm trying to act like I'm a Christian. And they're all in First Corinthians reading verses and I'm in First Chronicles. And they get to me and I read a verse about somebody getting impaled. And they said, Caleb, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in the... I'm in the First Chronicles, they're like, you're in the Old Testament, I said, so there's a new one, I guess, there's updated 2.0, I had no clue, and I kept on going back, and here's where I learned that Jesus had very deep theological convictions, he had very deep expectations for how we should live our lives and treat others, but he also had very deep relationships with people who are not like him, and far from God, and so when I became a Christian, and uh, I got baptized, never told my parents about it before I did it, because I knew they would say no, but I had accepted Christ, and I wanted to. A week later, I decided that I wanted to go to a, to a, I wanted to go into ministry, and so I had to tell my parents. So if you can imagine how a 16-year-old kid would feel coming out to his conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old kid coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents, and they kicked me out of the house. And so the same experience that some have gotten, I got on the other side. Because just like some Christian parents have associated their kids with those people, all of a sudden my parents, who are supposed to be so tolerant and talk about harm and so on, associate me with those people. And so that, that was a difficult part of my life. But I, I studied, and the more that I studied what Jesus said, 
I realize that our differences should derive as two people, not from them. Mm-hmm. What y- your book is trying to walk this really, I mentioned this kind of fraught middle ground and the messy grace. Um, what, what kind of reception have you received from your right about the book, you know, conservative Christians, but you're at Matthew Vine's church, so that's a voice on the more progressive side. Have you, what kind of re- reception have you received on that side? Um, have, have you found good conversation partners there, or has it been difficult, or are you getting dinged from both sides? Um, I get dinged from some on both sides, but overall the reception has been pretty good. Um, I, I tried to keep as much of a gracious tone in it as I could. Um, the first half of the book is really about, uh, and it's written to the average conservative Christian who's sitting in rows on Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever, and they don't know how to keep up with, um, with culture that's changing, and they don't know how to reconcile that with the gospel. And a lot of people want to go back to the Reagan years, and we're not going back there. Mm-hmm. The, the world is different. It's moved on. And so... Um, we don't need to change our theology. We need to change our posture. Um, and so the book is really written towards that person. Uh, and, when I re- and so people on the more progressive side, on the, for lack of a better phrase, on the left side, mm-hmm. they are, um, they've been uh, pleased with it to a degree. Um, I have a chapter, chapter where I talk about celibacy, and then I talk about theology of... Um, of heterosexual marriage and that kind of thing. They don't like that, but a lot of people on the left uh, appreciate it because I am trying to get Christian parents, especially, to tone it down with their kids, to approach this in a different way, to actually love and not sacrifice our relationship by how they act towards their kids mm-hmm. or their friends. Now, on the right side, I've had, you know, it's, again, it's been received well, but I've also had people that have not agreed with it. Um, people who felt like I was too lenient, people who felt like I wasn't rough enough. And, you know, that's, that's part of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love what Andy Stanley says. He says that there are um, problems to be solved and tensions to be managed. And I think that Christianity is a faith of tension. And we believe in one God, but the Trinity. We believe Jesus is fully God, fully human. The Bible is written by people, you know, but by God, so on and so forth. And I think that this is one of those tensions, um, grace and truth, when we approach people. No matter what it is, what difference we might have with them, this is a tension to manage. Yeah. When, when I, can I ask another question? What, so let me ask your opinion about this love the, love the sinner, hate the sin conversation. So when I ask people whether or not they think that is possible, like is it possible to manage that tension? And, and some people say, yes, it is. And then I ask them, and I say, well, give me an example. And invariably, they tell a story like your story, which is, well, my parents are gay, or my son or daughter's gay. And, and I think we can manage the tension well when we have a prior affectional relationship with people. But how do you but some people don't they don't know any gay people and so this conversation is about those people and you know, what do you say to them about how do they get to a place if they don't have that like loved one that kind of tethers them to the lgbtq you know community like in, like a, an affectional umbilical cord that they can't sever 
how do you get how do you get this this other group of people in the church who who look at the gays and they don't have that affectional connection that exists prior you know existed prior to your conversion what what what's your thoughts about getting those people to be more messy grace people uh well first of all we have um i want to i kind of feel like you're asking two questions so um let me try to answer them first of all we have messy grace video curriculum that's releasing in january (laughs) this is not hold on there is a purpose for me saying this this is not shameless plug i respect it it's not shameless it's shameful yeah um (laughs) No, but seriously, we have, uh, we have uh, it's really cool because it really doesn't even feature me. It features Jackie Hill Perry, Sam Alberry, uh, Margaret Philbrick, and her brother who, or her sister who just transitioned over to being a man and catching all of these conversations on record, on, on video. is just going to be so mm-hmm. powerful. But within the promotion of this, I just wrote a blog for City on a Hill Productions um, called, uh, you know, Love the Sinner, Hate the Sin. And uh, here's what I, I mean, you can go read it, but here's what I wrote about it. Um, I think that's a horrible phrase, uh, personally. And I'm not saying that you're using it. I'm just saying no, I, I'm that, um, that I think it's awful, and I think it should be cut out of the Christian uh, phrase book. Um, I think that it's... Uh, I think that it's worse than the testaments that they sell in the Christian bookstore. It's, um, it's awful. Because, I mean, number one... Um, love the sinner, hate the sin. Number one, scripturally, when you look at it, God associates sin so personally to the individual. I mean, just read the imprecatory Psalms and you see that. And I'm not making a statement there. I'm just saying that it's just not that easy for us to separate because we're not God. God can do it, but we can't. He's multidimensional. Second of all, um, I mean, everybody eventually has a problem with somebody in the relationship that they have. And so that's just weird. But third of all, think about how that sounds to the person you're talking to. Yeah. You know what? I know, I know that you say you're in a same-sex relationship, but you know what? I love you. I hate your son, though. Oh, great. Thanks a lot. Wow. No, they're going to take that personally, and they probably should take it personally. And I just don't think we should say that phrase anymore. It's harm- it is, I think, if I can use this word to borrow it from the left as you were talking about, I think it is harmful. I think it will hurt your relationships and set it back. Um, I don't think you should say anything like that. Um, I think that if, if a Christian is having a problem with the LGBT community and they don't have that umbilical cord of what you're talking about, um, I think that what they need to pray is for God to give them empathy. I think empathy is something that we don't pray for enough. Um, lately, I've, uh, anytime Brene Brown writes a book, I try to read it yeah. because I just think she has powerful, powerful stuff to say. And some of her, obviously her work on shame is amazing, but her work on empathy and some of the things that she has to say um, is, is just so powerful. And I think about the fact that if there's anybody that should be fans of empathy, it should be us, because didn't God himself come in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, to come and to die on the cross for our sins? But not only that, to live everyday life with us, right? So he could be our high priest, like Hebrews says. And so, but when it comes to us being empathetic, we don't want to model, we don't want to follow God's lead. And anytime we choose not to be empathetic, we will never fully appreciate or understand where a person is coming from. We will never be able to help that person. We will never be able to be close to that person. And so 
any time that I have a problem with somebody, I always pray for God to put somebody that I'm having a problem with in my path so I can get to know them, so I can develop this empathy. Um, and, and I think just like God has pursued us with compassion and grace and love, we should do the same to others. Yeah. Uh, I, I 100% agree. I think empathy and being able to see the humanity and the people around you is the first step in anything. I mean, if, if you don't have the ability to commiserate with someone else, then I don't think you have the ability to communicate to them. Uh, I think that's just the, the basic building block for anything you do. It starts, it starts with empathy. Uh, you said to get rid of the phrase, <clears throat> hate the sin, love the sinner. If I understand you, you correctly, you still take a conservative stance on the issue. So how, how do you rest? Is that fair to say? I mean, no, yeah, I, I believe... I, I, I'm, I guess I would be labeled non-affirming because I believe that God designed intimacy to be expressed between a yeah. man and a woman in the context of marriage. So how do you replace that idea of love the sinner, hate the sin, if, if that's out of your vernacular and you still maintain this position? How, how, are you, how are you explaining that? How do you communicate that when you're preaching it? What is the verbiage that you're using? I think that um, a couple things. I think one... I think that we have to live within this tension of grace and truth that I talked about. I think Jesus came full of both grace and truth. You know, I mean, we believe in truth that God did design sexuality for the expression of marriage between a man and a woman, and anything outside of that box is sin. It's not, it's sin, and it's not part of his design. But at the same time, a theological, a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to devalue another person. Mm-hmm. Our theology should drive us to love people more than anything else. And so I think that grace and truth, living in grace and truth, um, you have to live with what's real, even though you're pursuing the ideal. You have to live within reality. And so I talk about grace and truth because Christianity is a, is a, uh, a tension. It is a faith that is filled with tension, as I said before. And I'm not calling um, same-sex intimacy attention. I'm saying that our relationships with people mm-hmm. are filled with tension. So, and so I think we have to approach it with grace and truth. That's more the vernacular I would use. So last week you were at Matthew Vine's conference, right? Yeah. And so Matthew Vine wrote the book, uh, God and the Gay Christian. Is that the title yes. of it? Okay. And so I'd assume some would hear, okay, you're going to support this guy's conference. It's not a conversation. It actually was a conference, <laughs> so we can use that word. Um, and he's an outspoken, affirming Christian. And you're, in a sense, supporting his conference, supporting what he's doing to spread the message of an affirming view of same-sex marriage. How, how do you communicate to, to your people who are going to push back and go, hey, in a, in a sense, you're, you're supporting what he's doing by even being present with that? Um, I would say, yeah, I would say I'm not supporting the theology of the conference. If anything, you know, I was invited to say, hey, Caleb, this is your viewpoint. You're coming from, I, I think, what they call side B. I don't know if we're side A or side B. I think it depends on who you talk to. Yeah. I, I've always been kind of side I'm way down the alphabet. I'm not even B or A or anything. But anyway, so I was, I was, I I think the only person in the room that believed that intimacy was between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And so um, we have, you know, at our church, an increasing number of people who identify as LGBTQ or in same-sex relationships or whatever, who are attending our church. And so I think there's a curiosity of 
Um, why is it that people who are in same-sex relationships or who uh, are, are, have more of an affirming theology, why would they go to a church like Discovery that is non-affirming? And so I think that that was kind of what they wanted to unpack. And, you know, I saw it as another opportunity to be able to make much of Christ. Mm-hmm. So it was an opportunity to be able to um, talk about uh, God's design, you know, for uh, relationships and marriage. Because really when it comes down to it, it's a reflection of God, marriages, and it's a reflection of Christ and his church. Talk to me a little bit about... Um celibacy and singleness because i think we call people to celibacy um and yet we condemn them in our churches because our churches are so family centric and singleness is really hard you know and so it seems like sometimes we call them to this and yet we then we abandon them um by the way we structure our church lives and make it resolve revolve around families i think People are very, very lonely, and I think churches aren't helping attenuate the loneliness a lot for our singles. Yeah, we had, um, I remember one couple that came up and uh, came up to me in between services, and uh, they were an older uh, lesbian couple, and they said, hey, uh, we're in a relationship together, and we wanted to know if this is a safe church for us to attend. Uh, What do you believe about um, gay marriage? And you gotta love those questions in between. In between <laughs> services, they're great, especially when you have three. Man, I, I love, love those questions. But um, I never answer questions like that. I, first of all, I don't like litmus test questions. Um, second of all, I, I don't think that it's good to answer those in between services. So I said, hey, if you would just go ahead and make an appointment with my assistant, let's get together this week. I'd love to hear your story. And here's what I learned from them. I learned that they've been together for like 30 years. They lived in the same house, slept in separate bedrooms, and they were no longer intimate. It was just the companionship. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the question is, are they sinning? I had a similar conversation with my mom one time, which I don't know how it came up. I never talked to my mom about intimacy or anything. Um, it's gross. My mother. Um, and you know what? I'm not saying my mom. I'm saying, listen, if any of you have conversations with your parents, or if you've ever remembered them talking to you about it, about, you know, like sexuality or sex or anything, you're like, oh, you're talking to your mom and your dad about that. I mean, a stork brought me. I don't know how the two of you got here. <laughs> well, stork. anyway, yeah. yeah. But I think that's where empathy, though. Yeah, it is empathy. I don't empathy. think we feel enough empathy for the loneliness in the world sometimes. No, it's about, it's about belonging. That's what it's okay. about. And so my mom said that she and Vera had never been, um, had not been intimate in like seven years. And it, this was a long time ago, um, back when I was in high, or high school or just out of high school. And I said, oh, so you're not a lesbian anymore. She said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. I'm part of a cause and a I movement. I have friendships and relationships. Mm-hmm. And I said, you just described the church. And she said, no, I didn't. Why would I go somewhere that would shame me? And it really dawned on me that it's about identity and belonging there. And so this couple that I talked to at the church, it was about belonging for them. We have people who are attending our church who met on asexual dating websites. And they just, they don't want to be sexually intimate, but they're afraid of being alone. And I remember um, leading a a small group um, last fall of uh, about 12 people, 12 to 15 people, 
uh, most of whom were millennial, who attended our church, who identified some way as LGBTQ, whether they're in a relationship or they're celibate. And uh, here's you know what I found out about them. Almost all of them felt like that, like they were born that way. Um, every single one of them tried to change. About half of them tried to kill themselves somewhere in middle school and high school. Um, every single one of them had a bad church experience, and almost all of them felt like God hated them. And so the fact that they were able to come to discovery while they were carrying a difficult burden and try to figure out what their next step with Jesus was, to me, that was an incredible thing. And I think when it comes to celibacy, I think the biggest issue is not sexual intimacy, because unfortunately our society tries to say intimacy and sexual intimacy are synonymous, and they're not. I mean, a great book on celibacy and deep relationships is by Wesley Hill, Spiritual Friendship. And he talks about the power of intimacy beyond sexuality. And so I think when the church calls people to, to celibacy, they need to understand the biggest fear is that people, people are feeling like they have to sacrifice their belongingness to someone else. And I think that people want to belong to somebody. They, 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 they so want to be able to be that older couple staring across from the other person, holding hands when they're 80 years old, thinking about a lifetime of memories. And when we call someone to celibacy, we're telling them, you probably can't have that. And we've got to understand that that is a very big deal. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest roadblocks for some people who identify as LGBTQ, why they don't want to pursue celibacy is because the church has not done anything to walk with them. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think a youth group, a healthy youth group or a church can do for those students as they're figuring out their identity and understanding who they are so that they aren't in the overwhelmingly high percentage who contemplate or attempt suicide? I think the church needs to be a safe place to ask questions. I think that um, when we don't allow authenticity in churches, I think we create a Pharisee factory because the only way that somebody could survive is to either leave or put on a fake persona. And so we have to understand that there are different seasons within, the, within uh, people coming of age, you know, uh, preschool, kids want to know that there's consistency among adults, elementary age, they want to know that they're liked, that they have friends, middle school, they start asking questions, high school, they start wanting to figure out who they are. And so I think we've got to understand the different seasons of life that kids go through. I think that we have to do a better job of training our volunteers when it comes to student ministry, that the small group environment, if, if churches do that, it's not a therapy session, okay? It's a, it's a time to talk about the Bible and things, but if a student brings something up, brings something up, redirect and say, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. I think that um, the more that churches partner with families, I think the more that, small, that high school and middle school small group leaders partner with the parents of the kids that are in their small groups, I think the more that we're going to start seeing kids see the value within themselves. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, personally, I, I think those are some beginning blocks. Yeah. Okay, so I've heard you say this elsewhere, and then you just said it now. Uh, people who identify as LGBTQ, I, I've heard you multiple times. Is it just by chance that you say that, or is there motivation behind 
that, that phraseology that you're using, who identify as? I, I almost think that, um, you know, that the acronym of LGBTQ is ever-growing, right? Mm-hmm. In terms I of there's more letters? Yeah. I think there's two Qs, two Is, two As, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, I can get something like long, that depending on who you're talking yeah, to. Yeah, but it's the last A that's interesting to me. You know what the last A stands for, right? It's ally. ally. Yeah. Ally. And so now you can identify with the LGBTQ community and you can be straight because you're an ally. And so I think it's moved way beyond what some people have seen it as in the 1970s and 80s or whatever. I think now it's become more of a movement. It's more of a philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think it is. When you, when you think about um, the LGBTQ community as, you know, as the kind of organized community as some people look at it. Now, there are some people you know, who uh, will identify as uh, lesbian, gay man, whatever, who don't identify with the larger group. But more and more, I think people are identifying with the larger group because it has become more of a philosophy, more of a way of thinking, mm-hmm. uh, more of a place to exchange ideas. I think it's become kind of a, a big think tank in gotcha. a sense. That's my own personal opinion. I could be wrong. Cool. Well, I feel like we solved this. But both of you, I mean, we, we haven't gotten on the real, the biggest deal that we need to talk about tonight. And um, I do not understand why both of you still have hair. <laughs> you know what's the funny thing is like, I'll tell you my secret. I have really bad eyesight. And are you serious? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I got really bad. So this is, these are reading glasses. So I got, and so I, yeah. uh, my wife, I can't believe I'm telling you this on a live recorded podcast. So you don't have to. So anyway, so I was taking a shower. I can't see, you know, so I don't have a class. So I'm showering. I can't see anything. And I, you know, I, I use the last of the shampoo. And I, Jan is in the bathroom. So I stick my arm out saying, hey, sweetie, <laughs> some more shampoo. And she says, that's the dog shampoo. Yeah. And I pulled it back in and I looked. Dog shampoo. And it was a little tiny dog icon on the thing. I said, I've been using this for a month. And then she got mad because apparently it was very expensive shampoo. More expensive than she's buying well, from me. Well, she's I mean, like, you used all the dog shampoo. You, you could like not leave that in the shower. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, that's, that's what I credit my hair growth to is dog shampoo. You know, for people like Oliver. me, <laughs> for people like me, that has never happened. I mean, my wife is beautiful. She's tall, toned, tan, muy caliente Latina wife named Amy. She had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Fester and Dr. Evil. She had no clue. Hmm. I mean, this is what she wakes up to every morning. I told my church, I'm like, you, you, you may not like the sermon, but you got eye candy to look at for like 30 minutes. And so... I mean, trust me, it, yeah. I think this is something both of you need to think through, and I think more of your problems will go away in life, and you won't have to worry about the dog shampoo. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that should be the very last word. Now we've solved everything. <laughs> That's yeah. a good word. We're done. Appreciate you, sir. Thank you all. Thank you. You're Thanks. Smith. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.